One Week Season. OWS fam, the nation, my dudes and dudettes. We got a special Saturday podcast coming to you this week as Inner Circle is open to the entire community. I'm super stoked about that for a couple of reasons. One is we really, this podcast is really basically in a league of its own. And I say that not only as a primary contributor to it, but when you look around the industry, There's nothing like this podcast anywhere else. On this podcast, what do we do? We attack the slate from a strategy perspective, and we take a top-down approach. We start with the macro perspective of the slate. We take a look at where the field is likely to go within that constraints, Um, the constraints of the games, the game environments, the salary cap, all that good stuff. We then narrow it down to each individual position and do a quick discussion on what the field is likely to do, what angles we see, what leverage we can create. And we kind of wrap it up with um, a broad discussion and open it up for questions. So that's kind of the goal of this podcast. We want to be, we want to offer something that is not available anywhere else in the fantasy sphere. So that was kind of the brainchild or how this podcast came to uh, be, um, how we want to attack things and what we've been doing so far this year and how we are going to continue to do things uh, for the future. So those that are new to the podcast, appreciate you coming to hang out with us on Saturday. The time change, completely my fault. Uh, that's a story for... I, I don't want to belabor the story behind that, but uh, X and Aaron... Um, bend over backwards to basically accommodate me today. So I, one, want to thank them for uh, being able to accommodate my schedule today. With that said, I am going to bring in X. We're going to do a quick introduction, and then we will jump right in. My man, X, how are we doing this week, dude? I'm doing good. I'm especially excited because, you know, when we talked about the the time change for the pod, I mean, you offered to pay all my buy-ins for the week. So, like, I'm really excited to go into a win with someone else's money. So, that was very generous of you. Thank you. No, dude. I said I would give you all my head-to-heads. Oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. This is entirely... I'm leaving, kid. Yeah. So, quick... Okay, quick backstory. I'm going to cover... I made a day trip to Vegas yesterday to play in the win poker fall classic main event. I at dinner break, which was like six thirty seven o'clock in the evening. My wife texts me that she had made plans for us today that started at three. So that is why I basically spent the entire dinner break on the phone with X on the phone with Aaron, figuring out if we could make this work. And we moved the podcast up to 1 PM. Finishing that story. I played 11 and a half hours of poker last night, was eliminated on day one, 15 minutes left in place. So that was at 11.45 p.m. I turned around and drove four hours back home. I lost my phone, either left it in an Uber or it was stolen or whatever. Lost my phone. I'm on the way home and I'm literally like 15 minutes from my house and there's three donkeys in the middle of a one lane road in the backcountry of Arizona. 
apparently like when the prospectors came over and, and started mining Arizona, they brought donkeys with them. When they were done, they just released them into the wild. So Arizona has like 1,200 wild donkeys uh, roaming around Phoenix area, which is kind of funny to think about. But I almost hit these massive donkeys, uh, literally like Tokyo drifted, slammed on the brakes, swerved, counter swerved. It was insane. Uh, and that was at 3.45 in the morning. Got home, slept from 4 until 7, got up, wrote the end around, and now I am here. So that was my day yesterday. X, hopefully you had a better day. This story took a very different path than I was expecting. <laughs> you did not expect donkeys today, did you? <laughs> no, I don't think, I don't think donkeys are going to be the guest star of our podcast. Um, yeah, I, I, I was boring compared to that. I took my daughter to a neighborhood Halloween party, and uh, I wrote a <laughs> Sunday night football article. <laughs> Nice, dude. Well, that sounds uh, equally as exciting, I think. Um, there were no donkeys. I digress. Yeah, the, that's enough for the intro. Let's, let's talk about this, some football, man. And those who are going to be listening to this podcast uh, recorded, it should be up hopefully within two or three hours after we're done here. And that will go up. That typically goes up um, on the Inner Circle only uh, podcast stream. Um, and again, that should be open to everybody this week as well. If you are listening to this and you have not listened to some of the other Inner Circle benefits this week, I highly recommend you do so. I listened to JM's um, strategy session on Tuesday. That was incredible. Um, get a little bit of a sneak peek into JM's early week process, how he goes from big picture to small picture and narrowing down his player pool. And that, I think, is probably one of the most um, often occurring questions we get is how do we like, how do we attack a slate from big picture to small picture? How do we narrow our player pool? How do we pick out the best plays? And if you have not listened to that, I highly recommend you do so. Um, again, that is typically open only to uh, inner circle members. Um, but JM does a strategy specific um, podcast, uh, solo podcast, just him uh, and the boys. And he does that every week on Tuesday. Also in Inner Circle, obviously, we have this Saturday podcast uh, and a, a bunch of other great benefits through Inner Circle. And we did launch uh, earlier this week um, the rest of season Inner Circle. So if you're enjoying what you have uh, heard here today, if you're enjoying what you're getting out of the scroll and the oracle through Inner Circle, uh, highly recommend taking advantage of the decrease uh, in the price for the rest of season rate. Without further ado, X, let's talk week eight, man. So like we like I talked about, we'd like to start big picture from a macro perspective. And like we also always talk about, every slate is so different. And I kind of, um, I led with that somewhat tongue-in-cheek jokingly in the end around saying like, you're probably getting tired of hearing me say this, but this slate is super interesting and super unique. Well, that, that's really the case every week. So X, I ask you, what are you seeing from a macro perspective with respect to the slate this week? Yeah, I mean, God, is it uh, is it corny if I say it is super interesting? Because it is. Right? Every slate is interesting. They're all like this unique puzzle to try and solve. Um, this week, what's interesting to me is there's no one clear like chalk game to stack and that's kind of leading ownership to be distributed pretty widely in ways that are honestly a little confusing to me um but we're seeing ownership kind of spread out across the board you know there's a lot of people want to play like rams but really we're seeing ownership on 
individual plays more so than games. Like there's no game that I'm noticing that is attracting a ton of attention. And so I wrote about this in the Oracle write up this week where I feel like there's three ways to approach this week. One is you kind of do what the field seems to be doing, which is, you know, you're probably going to pair your quarterback with a pass catcher of some sort. But other than that, not really building around a lot of stacking and correlation and just kind of trying to get a lot of individual plays right. And from looking at ownership projections, I think that's what the field is likely to be doing largely. Um, or you can try and actually pick a game to stack and like you hope that a game actually goes off and becomes competitive. Uh, and that could either be one of the really high total games on one side, like the Bills or the Rams uh, or the or the Bucks, and you're then bringing someone back from the other team, hoping that that game is more competitive, that the underdog team puts up a fight. Or you could pick a game like uh, Eagles-Lions, for example, or um, you know Falcons-Panthers, and you hope that that game just exceeds expectations in general and becomes a shootout with multiple must-have pieces. But that's kind of like the, the macro angle I see is just lots of spread out ownership across a bunch of different games with people trying to pick all of the right individual plays and correlation less of a factor this week. 100% man. I'm seeing the same thing. Um, I wrote in the Oracle that I feel like the field is going to be struggling with the basics this week. And, and what I mean by that is paying attention to game environments, picking out the best on paper plays. And I think the field is going to struggle with a, an overemphasis on certainty or perceived certainty. I should say the field is showing, um, fairly biased certainty towards Darrell Henderson and Cooper cup in particular from the Rams, uh, combined ownership of exceeding 50% from those two. So we can take a, a, a pretty solid, or, or I guess that paints a pretty solid picture for us when we're thinking about how rosters are, are going to be constructed this week. The other game that you mentioned was the Buffalo game. They are, those two teams are basically co uh, highest Vegas team or Vegas implied team totals this week. So I was expecting to see a lot of ownership from the Buffalo pass catchers. But what we're seeing is this weird situation where we're expecting uh, quarterback Josh Allen to carry, you know, top two ownership at the position. And this again, or I guess I should say also, this is one of the first weeks where we've seen greater than 15% expected ownership on two separate quarterbacks, which has not been the case. Um, and that's going to lead into something that we're going to talk to here uh, shortly as well with the quarterback position. There are not a lot of options at quarterback um, from a certainty perspective, but we will touch on that here in a little bit. I want to finish up with this thought with Buffalo. Buffalo, Josh Allen is expected again to carry over 15% ownership. When we look at his pass catchers and like the... Highest ownership on any one of his pass catchers is Stefan Diggs uh, at 11%. And then Cole Beasley's right uh, below him at 9%. And um, Emmanuel Sanders, I don't even see where he's at. Oh, he's right there at 9%-ish as well. So when you think about like the, the high-level expected ownership on Josh Allen, but lower than expected ownership on his pass catchers, that creates a weird scenario, which is like, we haven't seen that this year. We typically see the inverse of that, where we're expecting high ownership on the pass catchers, and we don't see high expect ownership on the quarterbacks. So that's another interesting dynamic that I think we need to work through this week, particularly with respect to these two teams. Because like I said, 50% com 
combinatorial ownership on two players from the Rams in Darrell Henderson and Cooper Cup. And then this weird dynamic situation with uh, Buffalo. So what are you seeing from a strategy perspective with those thoughts uh, in mind? Yeah, I actually want to add on to the Rams too. When you start working in the other pieces, we've also got like Van Jefferson around 12 to 15%. Uh, we've got Higby at a little under 10% and Woods at a little under 10%. Um, this, this this is feeling like a week, like a couple of weeks ago, we had similar uh, massive ownership on the Rams where it was like combined ownership for all the Rams skill position players was like 70% and yet no one was playing Matt Stafford. So you, when you see that data, what it tells you is there's not a lot of like onslaughts happening like most of those are most of those rams are going to be single rams on on a roster and so what it tells us is you know well over 50 percent of the field is going to have exactly one rams player on their roster and so that tells us that there's like so there's an area of certainty and 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 it's not about outcomes but it's about certainty of what the field is doing which is tremendously valuable now you know, is it likely the Rams are going to fail to put up points against Houston? No, Ram, the Houston's awful, right? The Rams are going to put up points against Houston. But uh, I think that the likelihood of any individual Ram putting up a, you know, a tournament worthy smash score uh, is is lower than that ownership dictates, right? Like if we played this out 100 times, how often would a Ram, how, how often would one Ram get to like 30 plus points? which is kind of what you need um, to be like a, you need this guy to win a tournament and cup even more. A cup needs like 35 plus at 9K salary. And I would argue it's lower than the 70% or so. So from a strategy angle, I'm probably going to try and be underweight the Rams in general. And I just think to your point about like the field assuming certainty, I think that's largely true, right? Like Henderson is clearly a good play. Um, Henderson is a good running back in a good offense with a high team total. Uh, I don't know, and he's he's got a pretty unquestioned bell cow role. But that bell cow role has not led to massive volume for him, right? Like, if you look at, I mean, he's had that role all season, and the most he's scored is 24.7 DraftKings points, and that was a game with two touchdowns against the Giants a couple weeks ago. That's a solid score, but it's not a had-to-have-it score. Um, the only guys really put up had-to-have-it scores on this team has been Cooper Cup. Um, but part of the reason why they've been had to have it scores is because he started the season off so much cheaper, right? He put up 39 points in week two at six, that at six K salary. Um, you know, he put up 40 points last week at 8.4 K salary. Um, now he's nine K. And so like, you kind of need like another 40 point outcome for him to really like hurt you if you don't have him, right? If he puts up 30 plus, like you're happy you have him, but it's not like you can't win without him at nine K. And like, that's really been the only game that we've seen, like I had to have, um, to have uh, performance out of really any of the Rams. So like they score a lot of points, but it's entirely possible those points get spread around pretty widely and that none of them actually puts up like the score that you, that really differentiates you. And if I can elaborate, like I always think about um, with my, each of my rosters, I try to think about what's the win condition for this roster and, you know, obviously it's scoring a lot of points, right? Um, but really what a win condition is, is it something that distinguishes that roster from other rosters that are built around the same core? And so, like, let's say that I have a roster with, Thur- with Henderson and Cup on it. Um, that Henderson and Cup are not the win conditions on that roster. If they do super well, that roster is not shooting up to the top of tournaments because they're incredibly highly owned. 
Um, so what I'm hoping for there is that they put up scores that are necessary but not sufficient. And what that means is a score that's necessary to win a tournament, but by itself that score will not win you the tournament because so many other players own that own those guys that just you know you need the right other pieces around them. And so you can play Rams, um, but just recognize that the Rams are unlikely to win you a tournament by themselves because of the ownership concentrated on them. What you're going to need, you're going to need the right other pieces around them. You're going to hope that okay, you know, Cooper Cup and Daryl Henderson, especially at their ownership, what you're hoping for there is a necessary but not sufficient score. And, and personally, I think the, the odds of a necessary but not sufficient score are fairly low um, for the Rams. Like. It, it's possible they could get there, right? Like it wouldn't surprise me. I've doubted Cooper Cup before, and he just seems to smash every single week. Um, and I'll play some of him, but I feel like there's there's more fragility in those plays than the field is giving credit for. And this is kind of what happens on a week like this, where there isn't a tremendous amount of certainty, and so chalk still congregates every week, right? Because the nat- like the sort of recycling nature or the circular nature of our industry, where like plays get talked up and they get projected well, and then the ownership rises, and then more people start talking about them, and then they start appearing on like top playlists and some ownership congregates and so like chalk congregates single week even in a week where there isn't a lot of super strong chalk and so i would argue like henderson's a fine play but as the single highest owned player on the slate for a guy whose season high DraftKings points outcome is 24.7 that just feels you know he could break that this week but that feels not as safe as i think the field is giving credit for um same with like cooper cup same with some of the other really highly owned plays we're seeing this week like chris godwin t higgins calvin ridley um at tight end we've got like dan arnold jared cook ricky seals jones none of those guys are bad plays but the field is giving them essentially like the ownership is saying the field is seeing more certainty in those plays than I think there really is. And so that gives us an opportunity to find ways to be smartly different. Um, and you know, some of those chalk plays could hit. And I'm not saying you just don't play any of the high-end guys. You can certainly play them, um, and they're good plays. But we want to be smartly different in the field to give us to maximize our chances of winning tournaments. And this is a week where the chalk feels more fragile to me than most weeks this season. And so this, when that happens... What I want to do is I want to be more off the board than usual when I'm constructing my rosters, um, when I feel the chalk is especially fragile. I love it, dude. Uh, that's basically my thoughts exactly. I know the end of round came out a little bit late, but when you're done listening here, you'll see that I unpacked the situation pretty heavily, and I want to take some time to unpack the situation with the Rams uh, here as well. So with Darrell Henderson, He has one game the entire season where he has fallen outside of his standard range of outcomes with respect to running back opportunities of 16 to 19 opportunities. So that's a combination of rushing attempts and targets. 16 to 19 in all but one game. The only game where he saw outside of that range was week six against uh, the Giants where he saw 24. Now we look at the opponent. The opponent, the Houston Texans, they are, I think the field is still going to have this hangover idea of how the Rams performed against a Detroit team who we, when we unpacked that game last week, we came to the conclusion that the, the Lions were going to be pushing the Rams. They were going to be giving them additional plays run from scrimmage, and they were going to likely be pushing them on the scoreboard. And what did we see? Like they came out, they were they were uh, going for it on fourth down in their own territory. They were they had two fake punts. They had an onside kick. Like the Lions are like a hungry team. The exact opposite of the Lions 
is the Houston Texans. They are like trying to get through the season, get through the myriad of issues with respect to the personnel on their roster. Um, obviously, they are selling uh, their veterans. They just um, sold Mark Ingram. They have Deshaun Watson's ongoing legal and all that trouble lingering over their head. They're trying to get through the season. They have a head coach who is like has been in the league for like 32 years, is an old school guy. He is a, I am going to slow the game down. I'm going to run the football and I'm not going to alter that game plan, like regardless of what happens on the scoreboard. So literally like we can think of the lions on one end of like the, the aggression spectrum and Houston Texans are like on the exact opposite end. So that creates an interesting dynamic when the field has just seen this team play the Lions, and now they're playing the Texans. And that is not going to be the same game environment. So all of that coming together, what does that mean to us? Well, that means Houston is not going to push this game. They're not going to be giving the Rams additional plays, offensive plays run from scrimmage. And we can expect from what we've seen out of the Rams is if they get up big, they're just going to run the football and they're probably going to bring Sony Michelle in the game. And it's going to be this situation where they are not going to be pushing the envelope and they're not going to be forced to push the envelope with a high level of confidence. So all that being said, it is likely a scenario that Darrell Henderson lands within this 16 to 19 running back opportunity range. Can he like break a slate on sub 20 running back opportunities like i guess yeah maybe the texans are allowing 63.6 offensive plays per scrimmage to their opponents which is right in the middle of the league it's 19th in the league you would think that would be a ton higher with how poor this offense is it's not like 64 plays the nfl average is like 68 69 somewhere in there so they're averaging or they're allowing below average plays a game. They're running below average plays a game. We can expect below average plays run in this game. Now, like if if the Rams get up big and they rest Matt Stafford, which we've seen early in the fourth quarter, they um, are basically doing nothing but running. And it's likely going to be not Darrell Henderson. We're left with this like there's not a lot of outs when we look at Darrell Henderson. Like he has to score two touchdowns. He has to hit the rushing bonus and he has to do all of that on likely sub 20 running back opportunities. So can he do that? Like it's possible. It is not a high percentage chance outcome this week. So Darrell Henderson is one of my biggest traps uh, on the entire slate and he's expected to garner 30% ownership. So that kind of tells you the, the state of this slate is the field has such a high degree of certainty with Darrell Henderson in particular, and he's one of my highest uh, bust rate traps on the slate. What are your thoughts yeah. now that I've kind of gone through all that with Darrell Henderson? Yeah, I can throw a couple of stats in there. So you guys remember last year when we had the New York Jets and uh, people kept playing games with the Jets and often using Jets bringbacks thinking, well, you know, they're going to get way behind and they're going to have to pass a lot. And they just kind of didn't. They were just like, fuck it. We don't care. We're not going to win this game. We're just going to run Frank Gore 18 times or whatever. And 
That's the Texans this year. The Texans have trailed. I think the Texans are abysmal. They've trailed as much or, or as much or more as almost any team in the NFL um, on a, on a percentage of their offensive snaps. They're twentieth in the league in pass play percentage. Um, by the way, the Jets are third. So the Jets suck, but they're they're doing well, what, what you would. Ex- yeah, the Jets are third in pass play percentage. The Jets are they suck, but you're doing what they're doing what you would sort of expect a bad team to do as they fall behind and they try to pass a lot to catch up um oh, detroit, we'll, get, we'll get to them later yeah detroit is seventh right and so this is why detroit made a lot more sense last week because detroit is seventh in passing play percentage also what they're zero and seven aren't they if they won a game i don't think um but they're you know they've they've been fighting right they're hungry they're trying the the houston houston's just given up right they're not trying to win games they're trying to survive them and so with that low passing play percentage to house point they're not going to push um to Henderson's workload, right? Like the Rams are coming off of three straight, uh, fairly convincing victories. The Lions push them a little bit. Um, but week five, week six, they kind of smashed Seattle and the Giants. Uh, in week five, Henderson had 18 running back opportunities. Week six, he had 24. Um, let me pull up Michelle again. I have a second ago. Michelle, uh, in weeks five and six, had 12 and nine running back opportunities. So to Hila's point, when they get up big, they're they're not going to give Henderson 25-plus opportunities, or they're not likely to. They're likely to bring in Michelle. And we're seeing this across the NFL broadly, right? Like teams are... Uh, rotating running backs more, and part of it—I don't know what it is. I don't know. If, I don't know if the extra game this season, or just you know, we've seen we've been seeing trending and away from like the bell cow back and into more split backfields. But the perception of like, oh, this is a high team total. They're going to be up, and they're just going to salt away the game with their lead running back. Like we don't see teams do that much anymore. And so like that, you know, and with so when you think about like slower pace of play, uh, the the Rams are also one of the highest. Uh, they have one of the highest red zone passing percentages in the league. So, you know, they're not running the ball a ton when they get in close. And so, you know, again, can Henderson still score two touchdowns? Of course he could. Um, but the 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 touchdown equity on Henderson is not, I think, what you might expect for a running back on a you know 30 plus um team total team so you know i agree with hilo like is henderson a good play in a vacuum yeah he is right especially on DraftKings, where he's 6500 which is honest which is really too cheap for a running back with his team total and workload um but when we have when we consider the ownership at 30 percent ownership i will say this if i was playing henderson um i would only play him on rosters where I had where a significant percentage of the rest of the roster was built in a somewhat contrarian fashion. So like I would not play Henderson on a roster that began with Jalen Hurts or Josh Allen. Um, I might play Henderson on a roster that begins with Carson Wentz, though, um, or begins with Teddy Bridgewater. Right. Like I just don't think it makes sense to lean into the ownership at running back when you're also doing it at um at you know at other positions now that's an mme approach right because like i'm going to be entering i have 150 lineups in the yahoo gpp this weekend because yahoo has an incredible gpp um by the way if you're not playing this like yahoo has this incredible gpp with uh 800 sorry uh, eight hundred thousand dollars collected if it fills um in from from entry fees and a million dollar prize pool so 25 percent guaranteed overlay so that's why i maxed that um and so i'll have some henderson there but I want to make sure I'm playing him like very smartly, not leaning into ownership with other high-owned games. And I definitely want to be significantly underweight the field on on the whole on him, um, because he's an okay play. Like he's an he's a okay. Sorry, that's that's not correct. He's a good play, but the uh, the likelihood of him putting up a true smash score is significantly less 
than the rate at which the field will own him. And honestly, like, I feel that way for all the Rams. Um, the only one I might not feel that way on is Tyler Higby because he's actually coming in quite low owned compared to the rest of the Rams. And so like he's he's the one Ram that I look at and think, could he smash uh, at a at a is likelihood of his, sma- of his smashing higher than his ownership? And he's the one where I'm kind of like, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Um, so I'd rather play like someone like Higby or even Bob Woods, who's also under 10 percent than leaning into these guys who are like 20 plus percent or 30 plus percent owned. Yeah. So let's talk about that real quick as well, because uh, that's an important thing um, to understand for the slate is how do Darrell Henderson and Cooper Cup or I should say and or Cooper Cup fail. And it is likely a the, the variance associated with touchdowns. You know, Cooper Cup is not going to pay off his price tag unless he scores multiple times. Darrell Henderson, as we just discussed, is not going to pay off his, uh, it's not going to provide a had to have it score at that ownership unless he scores multiple times. And this is a guy who has not yet reached the rushing bonus on the season. So, with all that understood, we know touchdowns are a highly variant act. We know that the Rams are not going to likely run an exorbitant amount of offensive plays. So how do those two fail? Well, they fail if Van Jefferson, you know, rips off a long one and cuts down even further on their offensive plays because he's picking up chunk yardage and possibility for a touchdown. And they fail if Tyler Higby scores multiple touchdowns. So those two plays, particularly with Van Jefferson and Tyler Higby, um, are the most interesting to me from this game in the sense that those are very clear leverage opportunities off of what the field seems to think so is going to be so certain. Um, you know, would we be surprised if Van Jefferson catches a 75 yard touchdown, um, only catches four passes, but like two of them are touchdowns? Like, no, like that, that is a, a viable outcome of this game. Would we be surprised if Tyler Higby, who is, you know, playing, amongst the most offensive snaps at the tight end position in the league running routes he's run it's like 227 routes or something like that i put the stat in the end around but he's running like he's still running routes he's not just on the field like blocking or you know running wind sprints he is he's well i guess he's kind of running wind sprints because he's not he's only targeted at an 8.1 percent clip uh of his routes run but that just goes to highlight the fact that this dude is like on the field and he's actually involved in the offense. He has just not seen the target. So when, or if that changes, like he's going to have a, a blow up week. We don't know when that's going to come. I just like the leverage created by those two players in particular this week. It's also worth noting the Ram, the entire Rams offense could fail to produce a strong fantasy score. Right. Like not that the Rams offense is not going to score touchdowns against the Texans, but we could see like Cooper Cup come in at 80 yards and a touchdown. And Robert Woods has 40 yards and a touchdown. And Tyler Higby has 30 yards and a touchdown. And Daryl Henderson has 80 rushing yards and a touchdown. Right. And there's four touchdowns, but no one has a strong DFS score. So like that's a plausible outcome, too. And, you know, you want to talk about touchdown variance here, right? So, like, if you're looking at the Rams red zone usage, Cooper Cup has seen 15 targets in the red zone, leading the team. Good red zone usage. Um, Nine touchdowns on 15 targets. Tyler Higby is second on the team in red zone targets with 12, two touchdowns. Um, Robert Woods is third on the team with 10 targets in the red zone, three touchdowns. And so, you know, a lot of Cooper Cup's uh, production has been propped up by 
you know, he's 15 red zone targets and nine touchdowns. Like that's a pretty unsustainable rate. Um, and I think a couple of those touchdowns came from outside the red zone, right? But, you know, nine touchdowns for wide receiver is 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 immense. And, you know, that that rate is unsustainable. He will be a strong receiver the rest of the season, but he's not likely to keep scoring two touchdowns a game every single game. And at some point, that touchdown variance is going to swing back to the other guys who are highly involved in the red zone, like Higby and Woods. So I'd act like, again, it's, this is not a like they're bad plays, but at their ownership, the field is giving just a tremendous high, a tremendously high degree of confidence that they are really likely to put up a had to have it score. And when you're leaning into a play at that kind of ownership, like if you think Daryl Henderson's ceiling, if you think the highest possible score that you're hoping to get from Daryl Henderson is 25 points, let's say you should not play Daryl Henderson on any single roster because you can get 25 points elsewhere. And what you hope for is if Darrell Henderson gets you 25 points and you played him at 30% ownership, you've essentially that's that's a that's a failed strategy. You shouldn't embrace that kind of ownership, hoping for a score that's only good. You should only like you should embrace that kind of ownership if you think he has a really realistic chance of putting up a score that you cannot win without. Um, if you think you can get that a 25 point outcome from other guys, then you should play those other guys and hope that 30 percent of the field just dies when Daryl Henderson puts up 12 points. Um, that's a much stronger strategy in the long run. Now, how that plays out this weekend, I can't tell you. Um, but over the long run, that will be a more profitable strategy than, than playing guys at 30 percent ownership who have realistic ceilings of 25 points. And. I kind of think that is Daryl Henderson's ceiling. That's what we've seen. Um, that's what you know. That's the highest we've seen. And again, ceiling to me means about 90th percentile outcome. Like, yes, there is a higher there is a higher ceiling somewhere in there where you know Daryl Henderson gets every single touchdown, scores four touchdowns, and puts puts up you know 50 points or whatever. Like, that's like the 99th percentile outcome. And I can't plan for that. I don't I don't build I don't build around hoping for 99th percentile outcomes. But I'd say that you know the 90th percentile outcome on really all of these guys in this game, for none of them, it's a does that result in a you must have this in order to win? Um, and so if you can't get an out if you can't get a ceiling outcome uh, from a highly chalky guy that would result in I can't win a tournament without this player, then you shouldn't play that player. Or that's my general perspective. Um, so I'm okay playing like Woods or Higby because I feel like their likelihood, their likely top outcomes uh, are not are still not necessarily in that like had to have it to win range. They're still likely in the like really good game range, um, but their ownership is much much less, right? Like their ownership is you know under ten percent. So I'm not concerned about uh, about the ownership as I am with like Cup and Henderson, where I'm where I feel like I would only play a guy at twenty twenty plus percent ownership if I thought that there was a strong chance of a, you know, of a had to have it. You cannot win a tournament without this player game. Yeah. So that's going to, I want to let that naturally lead us into like, who are the running backs that can put up 35, 40 points. And to me, they are all in the, the top tier of pricing. We have Derek Henry, who can do that in any matchup. I talked about that, you know, the, the tendencies of this Titans team there, Derek Henry's workload is much more, closely related to game flow as it is opponent. So like, yes, it's a difficult rushing matchup, but like Derrick Henry could still score three touchdowns and hit the bonus and go for 35 points this week. Like that is a viable outcome. His ownership, almost non-existent. Alvin Kamara, 19 targets over the last two weeks. And he is playing a Tampa Bay, Tampa Bay team who filters uh, opposing teams to the air and they filter targets to opposing running backs. 
okay, so can Kamara hit like 35, 40 points? Yeah, he just did it last week. Yeah, like, yeah, it was with 11 targets and 20 rush attempts, but like that is a realistic, like, in within his range of outcomes for a game against Tampa Bay. Like, he could see double digit targets at like six, seven, eight percent ownership and hit 35 fantasy points. Austin Eckler, who is has that big red juicy question Q tag, that questionable tag on DraftKings, which is going to lower his ownership. He's playing a New England defense who filters um, opposing pass games uh, through the middle of the field, primarily to tight ends and the running backs. We know Austin Eckler is heavily involved through the air and he hit 30 points. Well, he's going to need multiple touchdowns to do so, but he has shown that he can do that. He's done it twice this year. Najee Harris, who probably has the highest expected um, workload share for this week outside of anybody not named Derrick Henry. He's expected to come in at low ownership. Jonathan Taylor, if he gets 20 20 plus running back opportunities, which is highly likely in a game against Tennessee, he can pop for 30 plus points. He's done it twice this year. Even uh, continuing this discussion... DeAndre Swift, we've talked about him ad nauseum in uh, both this space and across the site, uh, especially this week. He can hit 30-plus fantasy points. Joe Mixon is going to need, likely, the Jets to push the envelope to force Cincinnati to remain aggressive from a I-want-to-still-score-points perspective, not necessarily an aggressive like through the air or on the ground perspective. But he could theoretically... You know, in a matchup against the lowest rated run defense in the league, if he, you know, gets up above 25 ish running back opportunities, he could go for 30 plus fantasy points. The final one that I think is interesting, and this one came up, I was not on him, but it came up um, in a discussion with Todd. I spoke to Todd again before this podcast, and Todd brought up James Robinson. James Robinson is playing a Seattle defense. Um, that is ranked second to last in running back production allowed. They obviously, <clears throat> excuse me, they obviously have uh, Gino in at quarterback, so we can expect their offense to not be very efficient. Um, and he is seeing about the same range of running back opportunities as Darrell Henderson. He's seen 20, uh, 21, 19, 20, and 21 over the last four games played. So in that same range, Uh, of Darrell Henderson. Can he go over 30? Well, he hasn't done it this year, but he hasn't had a matchup as good this year. He's played um, a, he's played Denver, Arizona, Cincy, Tennessee, which was probably his best matchup on the ground and Miami over the last five games. So can he theoretically get to 30 plus fantasy points? Well, he's going to need to hit the rushing bonus on likely the same range of touches as Darrell Henderson, but he's probably got a likelier chance to do so. Can he go for multiple touchdowns now? Well, yes, he can. He's done it already this year uh, in a little bit more difficult of a matchup against Cincinnati. So there's all these running backs who have a theoretical ceiling that is greater than Darrell Henderson. Yet again, Darrell Henderson is expecting 30 plus uh, percent ownership. So that leads into one of the greater areas where we can generate leverage on this slate is playing these higher ceiling running backs together. We're likely to see one pay up and I'll, I'll make the cutoff for a pay up running back at 7,100 with Deandre Swift. 
we'll say one of DeAndre Swift and above paired with one mid-range guy, most likely. We're also going to see um, a pay-up paired with a perceived value play. There's a couple of those, and I think those are traps as well. We'll get, we'll get into that here shortly as well. But we're likely to see a pay-up uh, paired with a mid-range guy, a pay-up uh, paired with a low-range guy, or a mid-range guy paired with a, another mid-range guy. So what does that mean to me? Like, There's going to be very few rosters in GPPs this week that have two of these higher echelon running backs. We just unpacked that those are the guys who have the ceiling this week. So that absolutely blows my mind. And that is where I'm going to be focusing a large chunk of my rosters this week. Thoughts on that diatribe of running back stuff? Yeah, I mean, I think you kind of just nailed it there, right? Like you can, we can talk about some other running backs um, who are, I think, at least in play this late. But like from a construction standpoint, right, like I think that that absolutely nails it where if you're chasing ceiling in tournaments, um, you know, you want to be playing the guys who have the 30 plus point ceilings. And so that's kind of why I think Daryl Henderson is, you know, also like, it feels like he doesn't make as much sense because if the, if this was a week where there weren't so many running backs who had 30 plus point outcomes in their range of outcomes, then you could argue that, Hey, on this week, 25 plus points from Daryl Henderson would be an awesome outcome and we should just take it and move on and fair but this week there there are quite a few running backs who legitimately have 30 plus point ceilings will they all get there no um it's possible none of them get there right like that's it's the sport we play um maybe no running back maybe daryl henderson scores 24 points and that's the highest running back score of the week that's possible um we can't know these things with, with certainty but when there's so many running backs who have who have uh you know 30 plus within their reasonable range of outcomes like their 90th percentile then why would I lean into Henderson at massive ownership when I could instead play um, play the guys who have much higher ceilings at much lower ownership? And that also just gets you like what we want to do in tournaments. We keep we keep talking about this a lot. Winning tournaments is not about finding the one percent owned play who goes nuts. Right. Like who just goes completely nuts and and no one owns him. And aha, I've won a tournament now. That's really not how you win tournaments, generally speaking. You win tournaments by building strong rosters with strong plays top to bottom, but building your roster in a way the field is not. And so we know that these higher price running backs. So that's like, you know, uh, if you're looking at the pricing that Hilo had called out, that's like Swift, Taylor, Henry, uh, Najee. All those guys are projected for 10% or higher ownership. So none of them are going completely overlooked, right? We're not trying to like dumpster dive for 1% owned plays here. We're saying what you do is instead of just playing one of them, like most of the field is going to do, you play two. Because very a very small percentage of the field is likely to play two of those guys. And so instead of just trying to hit on this sort of standard construction of one pay up, one mid-range, and then everything else that that sort of forces your roster to salary-wise, you pay up twice at that position. So you're still playing the strong plays. And, you know, you're just but you're doing it in a way that that makes your roster unique based on construction as opposed and the way the way that you're allocating your salary across positions rather than saying, I need to find some like some one or two percent owned guys. Guy and he'll go off and, and he'll make me win because that's really not likely to happen. We don't typically talk about individual plays in this space, but that whole discussion kind of leads me to one of my favorite plays on the slate, which is Alvin Kamara. 
He's mm-hmm. one of the guys in amongst those guys that we just talked about that has the lowest expected ownership on the slate. We look at this game environment, and I want to talk quickly about the Tampa Bay New Orleans game environment. Like this is two of the top, probably three, maybe top five. I would say two of the top three overall defenses in the NFL this year. That is what is holding down the game total in this game. On the other side of that coin, though, is these are two offenses who are highly likely to attack primarily through the air. We know that's the case for Tampa Bay. We look at New Orleans, and they over the last two weeks against Seattle and against Washington, they've shown that they will open up their pass offense if they need to. Well, they're highly likely to need to this week because you just can't run against Tampa Bay, and teams choose not to do so. Well, can we confidently project New Orleans to alter their game plan based on the, the opponent? Heck yeah, we can. They have Sean Payton as their head coach. So all these things are coming together. Kamara, low ownership. We can expect opportun- or running back opportunities and pass game work to filter through. And you see 19 targets over the last two games after seeing 14 over the first four games of the season. So we know... Basically, we can get the sense of the the fields the field from a let me put it like this the field from a psychological aspect. You know, talking about like human psychology is slow to react from perceived certainty. And what I mean by that is the Saints started the season with their first four games feeding Alvin Kamara only fourteen targets. They were giving him all the rushing usage in in the world. But he was basically the field is going to keep this idea in the mind in their mind that Alvin Kamara is like a yardage and touchdown back now. Well, what have we seen over the last two weeks? He's had 19 targets in competitive games. Do we expect this game to be competitive as a game environment overall? Like heck yeah, this this is going to be one of the better football games from like a real world football perspective on the week. So all of that coming together is. How do we identify these, you know, top on paper plays and not get sucked into the psychology uh, of basic human psychology that the field is likely to be sucked into? And by doing so, it kind of highlights a theme that we've seen across the site this week, um, and that is being different or contrarian by being unique. And that has come through Larejo. Jam talked about that in the Tuesday training session. And the best way to do that is to like not look at ownership perc- like ownership percentages uh, early in the week if that alters your thought process. The last thing that I want to talk about with that is with respect to another thing that Jam talked about uh, in the Tuesday podcast, and that is knowing yourself. And we X and I have talked about this in this space uh, earlier this year as well. And that is like anything you can do to better yourself as a person is going to directly translate into your DFS play. And that, that's going to have many more obvious um, al- you know, allocations of those talents uh, than just DFS, but that will translate into your DFS play. So by knowing yourself, like for me, one of the, one of the, processes, I guess, that transformed kind of how I attack DFS is knowing 
how I retain knowledge. I have a, a, I don't want to belabor this too much, but I'm going to give a quick uh, spiel here about how different people's brains organize information. So between men and women, men are very compartmentalized. We have pockets in our brain that we put information that matches that pocket. Women's kind of pockets all interact. And that's why when you, you, this is not meant to sound sexist or anything like that. But when you talk to a woman, the conversation can take all kinds of tangential turns. And that is simply a matter of different wiring in humans' brains, uh, comparing a man to a woman. So knowing that men have these compartments in their brain, I found out and understand that my like important section in my brain is fairly large. I can have a pretty poor short-term short-term memory if I don't put information into that important section in my brain. But once I do, it's like almost photographic. So knowing that and transforming my process and seeing how that evolves, that led me to my change in my process last week where I re-listened to this podcast on Sunday morning because when I'm going through this podcast and when we're talking about these things real time, I don't have the time to put pieces of information into my important compartment in my brain. That allows me the time to digest it, put it in the important sections of my brain, and carry that through into my decision-making matrix uh, going into the lead of the slate. So hopefully I didn't spend too much time, but I wanted to push the idea of one, bettering yourself will directly translate into in improved results in DFS. And two, knowing yourself and how you optimally function will better your process as well. That was a lot, man. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's about funny. That. <laughs> so I remember a while ago um, when I was first starting to write content for AWS, I remember JM would note things like about how he'd write the NFL edge. And then like a day later, he'd go back and read it. And I was always like, well, why would you need to do that? You wrote it. Obviously, you know everything that's in it. Um, and then I caught myself sometimes where I'd like, I'd write a showdown article. And then I later would go build rosters for that showdown. Um, and then I would not win. And then I would like go back and look at my article. And I was like, oh my God, everything I wrote in my article was right. And if I just played the way that I wrote this up, I would have had a much higher likelihood of of hitting in this in this showdown. And so I started doing the same thing, going back and like and rereading my own articles prior to through building rosters. Um, I also want to note around the the psychology element. I think there's also a psychology element of don't play running backs against the Bucks because we've just gotten so used to like running backs don't succeed against the Bucks because you can't run against them, which is largely true. Um, but you know, Alan Kamara is not. Uh, he can, he's capable of being used as not just a running back, right? He's he's capable of uh, enough pass game work that that alone can carry him to a strong score. So, like last week against Seattle, if you take out all of Alvin Kamara's rushing and just look at his pass game usage, he put up like 31 DraftKings points just with pass game usage. So, like the question is, can he get there in, a, in an environment where he's not likely to be running? And yeah, he can. And he also could get there like the, you don't run against the Bucks a lot, but they're not going to run against them zero times. And so there is still some equity in his rushing usage. Um, 
notably Taysom Hill is also out, our notorious goal line vulture. So like you also can envision a scenario where like Kennard doesn't have to get for 100 rushing yards, but if there's a pass interference call in the end zone and the Saints get the ball at the one, it's probably going to go to Kamara uh, for a carry, right? Because there's no Taysom Hill. So like that ups his goal line equity. So, you know, he doesn't have to run a bunch against the, the Saint, against the Bucks, right? He can get there on pass game work and then the, run, the rushing attempt is sort of sort of gravy but it's another interesting psychological element where for years so like a couple of years now it's been don't play running backs against the bucks and we just kind of do that blindly and no one even thinks about well what type of running back um you know miles gaskin right like miles gaskin put up 31.9 point DraftKings points against the bucks in week five and in hindsight like no one played miles gaskin that week he was sub one percent owned um, and in hindsight, though, I don't want to say that he was some smash play, but you could sort of see how that could have come to pass because you would say, OK, it's a split backfield, but Gaskin's their best receiving back. So in a matchup where they can't run, which running back is going to be on the field, it's obviously the best pass catching back. And they were really short on pass catchers that week. Um, that, that was the week, you know, Fuller was out. Parker was out. It was like Gaskin, Waddle and Gasecki were the only real like receivers on the team. And so you could envision that resulting in a target spike for Gaskin, both because he was likely to be the primary running back that week because of his receiving shops. And there just weren't a lot of other receivers on the team that were capable. And does that sound like Saints to you? Because it kind of does to me where their, their other receivers are like what Adam Troutman at tight end, you know, Marquez Calloway, Traquan Smith still kind of just coming back like Kamara's the guy. Um, so I, I, I'm all on board the Kamara train. If I can mention a couple other guy, a couple other running back um, thoughts here. Before we move on, there's what there's a couple here that I think are interesting. One is Nick Chubb, because I think that and I'm looking at projections right now, and projections are projecting kind of a split workload between Nick Chubb and Dearness Johnson. Um, and so Chubb is not projecting well at all. Um, but the question is, is what if that's not the case, right? Like what if it's not a split? And again, like in in tournaments, we want to look for the what if scenarios where they could lean it or they could lean away the field's not expecting. And so what if what if Chubb is fully healthy? What if Chubb comes back? And, you know, we've seen Chubb get some large workloads without um, without what's his name, uh, Kareem Hunt. And Chubb has no injury designation this week. So could he could he push for 20 plus touches? Uh, I think it's possible. Um, I don't know, right? But I think it's possible. And the field thinks the answer is no to that question. Um, another one is Khalil Herbert, who also projection-wise is projecting um, in, in being in a little bit more of a split with Damian Williams. Um, but last week, we didn't see that. Last week, we saw Herbert really get all the work. I think Damian Williams got like three or four running back opportunities. Uh, Herbert's workload has been on the ascent uh, he got 18 opportunities his first game against Las Vegas in week five. He got 22 against Green Bay, 23, or sorry, 20, 22 against Green Bay, 23 against Tampa with target counts going from zero to three to five. He's caught seven of those total eight targets. So his workload is, is on the ascent. This team seems to really trust him. So it would seem weird to me for it to be a step back into a timeshare role. Um, Damian Williams was around last week and didn't really get any work. So why would he all of a sudden take over a timeshare? So I think like, part of like, I also like to look at projections and see like where I think something might be misprojected. And what's often misprojected is is workload splits. Um, so that's another one I'll mention. And then finally, I want to mention the Philadelphia situation where Miles Sanders is out. And where I'm, what I'm seeing from projections is it looks like Kenneth Gainwell is being projected as the lead, like sort of the 1A uh, running back there with Boston Scott as the 1B. Um, is that 
the way this is going to play out. Again, I don't know, um, but it's worth noting that last week, Boston Scott actually outcarried uh, Gainwell in the second half. Um, Boston Scott got the one goal line carry that they got. Um, Gainwell continued to largely be used in the passing game. And so there's a plausible scenario here where Boston Scott is actually the lead back and Gainwell's role doesn't really change. And he remains in that kind of change of pace, mostly passing game role. Um, and so that's another possibility where I think the field is underrating that. And I only mention that not because I think either of them are fantastic plays, right? Like uh, Philadelphia running back has not put up a great score really this season um, because they've criminally underutilized their running game. And because Jalen Hurts is really their leading rusher. Um, but that said, like if you want to go that route, I would actually, I personally shy away a little bit from Gainwell, who's projected at pretty solid ownership. Um, and if I was going to play a Philly running back, like I would rather play Boston Scott at his projected 1% ownership than Kenneth Gainwell is projected 11% ownership. You're basically getting 11 to 1 odds um, that Scott will outscore Gainwell. And I think those are reasonable odds to bet on. Those are the rest I of my running it, back man. thoughts. I'm going to add one in that similar thought process with Kenneth Gainwell, and that is J.D. McKissick. And this is going to lead us into our game environments discussion because this is one of my favorite game environments for uh, sneaky upside. So J.D. McKissick, what do Washington have going for him this week? Well, we know um, we know that Deami Brown is out. We know that Curtis Samuel is out. Curtis Samuel is probably the biggest boost to J.D. McKissick's expected usage and workload because he is that guy who is that gadgety type receiver for this offense when he's healthy and is seeing these short intermediate over the middle of the field type plays. So who is likeliest to step into that? JD McKissick. So I want to talk about this game environment. Last game of the week in the afternoon slate, Washington against Denver. It has been hit a little bit here and there throughout the week through various uh, aspects on the site. Jam talked about it. Um, a little bit in the Tuesday uh, training session, um, and it was mentioned uh, a little bit in the scroll. That said, like this is one of those sneaky spots that I didn't really realize until last night slash this morning that I would I would have so much interest in um, because I didn't write about him in the scroll. I didn't even put him in the end around, um, and then I came to this realization that like. What is there not to like about these offenses? Well, typically on Washington, it's a concentration of pass volume. Well, that's taken care of pretty much by the absence of Curtis Samuel and Deami Brown. What don't we like about Denver typically? Well, Denver would like to slow the game down. Obviously, they're towards the bottom of the league in situation neutral um, pace of play. What offsets that for me this week is a game against Washington who is going to be aggressive. They're going to be pushing the game. And, you know, we get into that what if scenario of like looking for these under owned spots. Like, is there a viable game flow, game scenario, game environment outcome where Washington is pushing Denver? If so, where is that production likeliest to come from? We talked about the multitude of injuries on Washington. Obviously, they are um, still without Logan Thomas. Where's that likely production likeliest to come through? It's likeliest to come through Terry McLaurin. So, like looking at now, looking or I guess now bringing the attention back to Denver, like 
has Denver showed the ability to be aggressive through the air with Teddy Bridgewater at quarterback? The answer is yes. Like they against Las Vegas, 49 pass attempts against Pittsburgh, 38 pass attempts last week against Cleveland, 33 pass attempts. So his last three games, he has a low pass attempt total of 33 pass attempts. Do they have the offensive personnel to be successful through the air? They're getting Jerry Judy back. He was just activated off IR. They have a wide receiver in Cortland Sutton, who is probably one of the best deep threat wide receivers in the league. Where does Washington struggle? They struggle through the pass. They were an extreme pass funnel defense. So when we start like piecing together this game environment overall, I think it has a higher percentage chance of turning into something that is productive for fantasy purposes than the field is likely going to give credit for. Your thoughts on that, X? Yeah, no one's playing this game. Um, there's some ownership on Ricky Seals Jones, some ownership on Jerry Judy as a cheap receiver, but really no one's playing this game. Um, isn't Cortland Sutton? I don't know if he still is. A week or two ago, Cortland Sutton was number one in the entire NFL in air yards, which is a highly predictive he stat. He's still, yeah, like so. There's this, there's this stereotype I think about Teddy Bridgewater that he's a really conservative QB who doesn't attack deep. Um, but that hasn't been true this season, right? Like, but that's those stories that we that we get told and they tend to like, and you talk about how the brain works, right? We tend to latch onto those. And we think about Teddy Bridgewater and like my first inclination is to think conservative QB, lots of short passing. And that hasn't been true. And it's hard to get our minds out of that. Like once that, once that's ingrained as like what our perception of, of someone is, it's really hard to like challenge that and get out of that mental box. But Teddy Bridgewater has not been an extremely conservative quarterback this year. Um, he's actually been fairly aggressive. And so, you know, you've got a team that's hard to run against, um, a team that could push them. And Denver's defense has, has not been playing super well of late. So, you know, they could get pushed. I agree with that. Um, you know, some things would have to go right, obviously, but things have to go right for anyone to hit. I do think, you know, Judy being back is important for Bridgewater. Um, it's it, it could be viewed as a ding to Sutton, but I don't think it's really a big one. But Judy himself, like Jerry Judy, there's a lot of hype on him coming into the season. He's 4,900. He, in week one, before he exited, he caught six of seven targets for 72 yards and was out. I don't remember when in the game he left, but, you know, not not all the way through. Right. So, like. That's, you know, he's got upside. Fant has upside. He's got like Bridgewater has a great receiving core to work with. Um, and also like the ownership here is minuscule, right? Like, so is this the likeliest game to produce tourney winning scores? No, it's not, right? It's not. But is it likelier than ownership dictates? And I think the answer there is an unequivocal yes, right? Like Ted Terry McLaurin, who has who has a ceiling you know, as high as just about any receiver in the NFL. Um, 1.4% ownership, Cortland Sutton, 1% ownership, Judy, 5% ownership. Uh, the only guy who's tracking really any meaningful ownership is Ricky Seals Jones. And even that's 11% ownership for a $3,800 tight end who's playing. He's in the Logan Thomas role. He's playing every snap. And if you remember last year, like we played Logan Thomas a lot because he was in this incredible role um, and where he was playing every snap and just always in the field and running routes on every single on every single drop back. And it took a while for it to pay off. Um, but towards the end of the season, Logan Thomas started hitting like week after week after week at an incredibly low price and low ownership because people were tired of playing him. Um, and Ricky Seals Jones is, is in that same role. 
So, you know, are any of these players like smash plays that I want to have, you know, that would lock on every roster? No, but this is a great game um, where the the likelihood of it hitting, especially in a week where there's just not a lot of certainty, where I think it pays us over the long run to embrace uncertainty on weeks like this. Um, this is this is an example of where we can embrace uncertainty smartly, still using good NFL players in good spots. You know, I'm not saying like I would not be trying to dumpster dive to like Adam Humphreys here. Um, I'm still I still want to play good NFL players, but we can get them at minuscule ownership um, and in a game environment that could well be like. Is this game going to go for 90 points like the Chargers did? The you know, Chargers Browns did a couple weeks ago. No, but could it go for you know? 55 or 60. Uh, that's, I think that's well within the range of outcomes that would be on the high end. Yes. But like, I think that's well within the range of outcomes. And if that happens and you've got this game at like no ownership, uh, like that's how you win tournaments is, is catching those, those sort of opportunities in game environments that people aren't seeing. Yeah. And how does this game blow up, blow up for us this week? It blows up through deep passing. Washington, 24th in the NFL in yards allowed per completion at 11.4. Denver, 28th in the NFL in yards allowed per completion at 12.0. So we kind of have this like sneaky spot here where, you know, things, if they go right, they're likely to go right for both sides. And that Mm -hmm. leads me to my most interesting to me, low owned game stack of Teddy Bridgewater, Cortland Sutton as the primary downfield receiver for this offense. Jerry Judy coming back is going to lower his expected ownership, which is a plus to us and the Terry McLaurin bring back. So these are, I wanted to go through that to kind of highlight like how, how we go about finding the plays where we're still, you know, we, we want to lower the amount of things that need to go right, but we want to find these spots where if they do go right, they are likely to go very right. And this for me, uh, this week is one of those spots. We also note that 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 structure, that playing that structure would also, if it works, it also kills the like what twenty percent of rosters that are using the football team defense. Yes, yes, I forgot so, to mention that, but they, yes, you know, it's like an ex, it's like an extra perk added on top. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. I love it, man. What are what game environments are you seeing from a, I guess, perspective of? I think this has a higher chance of turning into something viable than the field is likely to give credit for. Yeah, so I don't know, honestly, and that's a crappy answer. But my my answer earlier in the week was Philly, um, Detroit, because I think that Detroit is going to push Philly like they pushed uh, the Rams. Detroit is an offense that has been throwing a ton. They're not just laying down and dying um, like the poor Texans. Uh, they're they're being aggressive and pushing, and and they've been fairly successful, and they also have a fairly nearly concentrated offense. So I like Detroit. Um, the problem, though, is that we're getting a lot of ownership on Hertz. We're getting a lot of ownership on Swift, a fair bit on Goddard, a fair bit on Devonta Smith. So I think that like I, the game environment's fine. I, I I still will be building some around it, but. I, I don't think it's it's not as low owned as I thought it was going to be. So I don't think I can fairly call that a game that's going to go overlooked by the field anymore. Um, the game that I think shockingly kind of is going a little overlooked by the field that I didn't think was going to is now uh, Colts Titans, which is I, I thought this game was going to draw a lot more interest um, because this is actually the highest total game on the slate 
it's also of the various high total games in the slate. It's the one that has the closest spread. It's not, you know, the other highest total games in the slate are like the Bills game and the Rams game, which where all the total is on one side. Um, and in this game, like we're seeing ownership, like, you know, mid teens on like Taylor and Pittman and AJ Brown, um, who in my mind are all some of the strongest plays on the slate. And then there's some ancillary pieces that you can mix into game stacks here. Like Julio Jones is out again. Right. And remember a couple weeks ago, Julio Jones was out and um, Westbrook Akeen or Akine um, was like really highly owned and he didn't hit. Right. I think it was, was that week four against the Jets when he was chalk? I, I don't remember. I don't remember when he was really popular. Julio's already missed so many games. I think so. Yeah. I'm looking back at Julio's game logs. He missed week four. Um, and so Westbrook was really highly owned in week four against the Jets. And he didn't hit, right? He he sort he got he got five point nine DraftKings points, um, but he saw eight targets, right? And so he ended up being a min price receiver that didn't hit. And so now he's in the same spot. He's actually like in exactly the same spot as he was in week four, um, except this week no one wants to touch him, and he's like projecting for a one percent ownership. And so, he, but he's he's the exact same play that he was against the Jets in Week Four when he was really highly owned. And you know, again, he saw eight targets in that week. So there's no reason we can't reasonably project him for around eight targets again at 3,100. So like, there are ways to approach this game uh, in a more contrarian way. Like, you don't just have to. Like, I, I like playing like Carson Wentz and Michael Pittman and Jonathan Taylor and bringing it back with AJ Brown. I think that's a really reasonable way to begin uh, a roster. Um, but you could also consider like adding like Westbrook Akeen. You consider Moelle Cox, whose role seems to be somewhat slowly growing and who just seems to be like, who seems to be developing into a significant uh, end zone weapon for them or red zone weapon for them. He's, you know, an explosive tight end. He's going to be much lower owned than the other cheap tight ends. So like there's ways you can approach this game, uh, I think, smartly. And, and in general, like when I see a game that's the highest total game of the week, my first reaction is generally, Okay, I'll come back to that. Like, there's going to be good plays in that game, but I've got to start trying to find other games that are going to come in at lower ownership. And somewhat shockingly, this week, the highest total game is actually projecting for pretty modest ownership, which is odd. Um, But I'm happy to see it because I'm definitely going to be on that game. And I think there's a couple others I don't want to talk about as much. Um, but a couple other games where I think we could see some exceeded expectations is uh, Patriots Chargers where I think that that's a game that people are shying away from because the Patriots still have a reputation for being a really strong defense. Um, they, the Patriots, it's hard to figure out what Patriot to play. Um, like, who do you play on the Patriots? I, you play Damian Harris, I guess, but they're a significant road underdog. He's a two down back. Do you play like a receiver? Well, what, what, what Patriots receiver has put up a big game this year? Like really none. Um, but I think you could play something like uh, Justin Herbert, Mike Williams, you know, Jer- even add Jared Cook and then bring it back with Damian Harris or Jacoby Myers. And that's a reasonable stack. You'll get it very low ownership. Mike Williams is one of the top scoring receivers in the entire NFL this year so far. I think he's like fourth or fifth in fantasy points per game. Um, and if you actually take out the game, he was there was one game he got hurt against Las Vegas. Wait, did he get hurt against Las Vegas? No, he didn't. That was just a random game. He disappeared. Uh, he, he, was, he was playing hurt against Baltimore and he only played like 30 percent of the snaps. So if you take out the game as Baltimore when he was playing hurt in healthy games, Mike Davis is like he might be the second highest scoring receiver in the NFL behind Cooper Cup. And yet he's coming in at 
1% ownership, which is baffling to me. And I don't understand it. And I think that kind of goes to this, like that story about uh, the Patriots are really good at taking away their opponent's top weapon, um, which they certainly might well try to do. But we have a lot of data around this. And the data has, the data tells us from years and years uh, of, of experience, you're looking at Patriots defenses and Bill Belichick defenses, that they might try that, but they're not actually statistically successful at it. Um, you know, the opponent's quote-unquote top weapon has good games against the Patriots just as often as one would expect, um, as the as a as the as a top weapon would have um, would have a good game against any other solid defense. I think what's happening there is the Patriots overall have a good defense, and so you know there's there haven't been a lot of huge games against them. Um, the defense is not looking as as fearsome this year, uh, but they you know so you see a lot of a lot of players fail going against the Patriots. Uh, and so that, that feeds into that story of, aha, Bill Belichick is so smart, he takes away his opponent's best weapon because, look, this guy failed. Um, and so it you know just reinforces that that myth. But it really is a myth. The data says it's not true. So I am happy to go back to the well of Mike Williams. I mean, when I can get you know a top five in the NFL receiver at you know sub 5% ownership, like that's a tourney play I'm going to make every time. So those are, I think those are a couple that I'm interested in. I think you can make an argument for Carolina, Atlanta, just because we we always enjoy picking on Atlanta. Um, and Atlanta's actually projected a healthy team total. Carolina's on the low side. And I think that's coming out of just Sam Darnold looking like, you know, New York Jets Sam Darnold for a couple of weeks in a row. But before he looked like New York Jets Sam Darnold, he looked like really good Sam Darnold. And so, you know, it's not a foregone conclusion that New York Jets Sam Darnold shows up this week, right? Like we could see really good Sam Darnold again. And you know, I think he's a volatile quarterback, but I'm not. I shouldn't. I'm not scared of volatility in tournaments when it comes at low ownership. So I'm happy to play that. Uh, play that game. Uh, I think that you know you can do. Uh, you could do Sam Darnold with Moore and Ridley uh, or something like that. And I think, or you could just do them naked without the quarterback. You could just do Ridley and Moore by themselves. Uh, they projected high ownership and their strong plays individually, but I think the pairing of them is going to be somewhat low. Yeah, coming out of. The riding the edge for both of those games you just mentioned, the uh, the Patriots and Chargers and the uh, Panthers and the Falcons, I was kind of left with similar, um, I guess, conclusions um, with respect to how that those individual games would be likeliest to blow up. Like with the Chargers in particular, like the Chargers are going to have to be the driving force in that game to really carry the game environment to be one worthy of attacking and how are they likeliest to do so through Austin Eckler and Mike Williams. So I left with that same thought process for that game as well. Um, for Carolina Atlanta, I kind of was thinking through when I was writing up that edge game of how, how can this game turn into like something that provides one, two, three, you know, GPP worthy scores outside of thinking about individual plays. And when I was thinking of, or approaching that game from that sense, it became fairly clear to me that um, Kyle Pitts is, has his most difficult individual matchup this week. Their reports and the talk out of the Panthers camp is that they're likely to use a shadow on pits, which is interesting to think about a safety shadow on a tight end that plays both in line, uh, or I guess all of in line, uh, in the slot and out wide. But that is what we expect from Carolina this week, how they're going to handle Kyle Pitts. So what does that like, what does that 
do for the game environment overall when he's been their most, you know, their highest uh, output player? Well, it directs attention to Calvin Ridley and and to Cordero Patterson. How are Carolina likely to or likeliest to like counteract and, and contribute to the game environment? It's clearly through DJ Moore. So that leaves me to this like DJ Moore, Calvin Ridley correlated pairing. Uh, as optimal in my eyes, or Cordero Patterson and DJ Moore pairing. Like, yes, Robbie Anderson is on the field all the time. He's seeing all these targets. I'm just like, I don't want to like get into this habit of just writing off players, but like, and I don't, I don't want to fall into the like, I have to see it to believe it. But like, watching the film, Darnold and Robbie Anderson are just like not there. They're just not, they're not there. They're not on the same page. You know, Robbie Anderson is like this above average wide receiver, not elite. Darnold is like this below average quarterback, not atrocious. Um, so it, it's this weird dynamic where it's, it's like, I, I think I can find better ceiling in that price range as Robbie Anderson this week. That's kind of where I'm at in those two games. The last game I'll mention is uh, the Tampa Bay New Orleans game that we talked about a little bit earlier. How does this game environment turn into something uh, where it provides those viable um, fantasy scores? Through New Orleans, it's likely through Alvin Kamara. Through Tampa Bay, the field thinks it's likely through Chris Godwin. We look at like all these Marcus uh, Marshawn Lattimore versus Mike. Hot. Yeah, when we look at all these like Marshawn Lattimore versus Mike Williams games that we've had throughout fantasy football history, right? Like Chris Godwin has scored sub fourteen fantasy points on average in those games, which I, it absolutely blew my mind. That led me to the leverage scenario of Alvin Kamara and uh, Rob Gronkowski should he return. Yes, like New Orleans has been pretty good against tight ends, but like Gronkowski is not just your NFL average tight end. He, before injury, was playing 80% plus of the offensive snaps, which is an increase from last year. He is that arm over move that he does, like it, it just melts linebackers and slot corners. He just does a simple arm over and he's got two yards of separation. And that is all that Tom Brady needs. Uh, so, thinking about like how this game environment would be likeliest to turn into something worthy of our attention. Those are the two pieces from the teams that I arrived on your final thoughts on that before we kind of clean up the positions. I love Gronkowski, man. I mean, he's back down to 4,600 too, right? Whereas he was, you know, after the first two games, he was up to like 5,500 and is out. And I think he's, he's going to fall into that boat of like, people don't want to play someone just back from injury. Um, so I love me some Gronk. And I think you're right. Like ownership is flocking to Chris Godwin and Chris Godwin is a, like, I love Chris Godwin. He's an awesome player. Uh, and he's won me, you know, a fair bit of money over the years, but like it's, it's again, it's, it's the field embracing or the field seeing certainty where I think that there is not certainty. Um, and I'd rather, I'd rather embrace volatility. Um, what else was I going to say? Crap. Oh my God. What was the game you talked about before this? There was something I was going to mention and I just, and then I forgot because you started talking about Gronkowski and it made me salivate. Um, yeah, the, uh, the Patriots. And Patriots. Chargers. Fuck oh no, it was Atlanta and Carolina. Sorry. Oh yeah. Um, 
I, it's, it's gone. I don't know. It must have been something <laughs> stupid, or I would have remembered it. Hopefully, it was probably super important. Damn it. I don't know. It's yeah, the key to winning the slate, apparently. <laughs> yeah, uh, that was um, it. I, just, I just lost it. Right. It's like um, those progressive commercials where they like interrupt. Never get old, friends. Never get old. Um, it's the oh, absolute oh, worst. On that, happy birthday. What was it? 72nd trip around the sun? Yeah, no, I got my A or P thing in the mail. <laughs> I got the security rolling in. Like, it's just awesome now. That's great, man. Congrats. The senior discount at Baskin Robbins. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Robbie Golden Anderson. Corral, Sorry. Dude. I was going to mention Robbie Anderson. So, like, I've been playing Robbie Anderson. Um, a fair like not not a ton um but i've included in my player pool this season and you know he's he's a player that i think we want to like we we view the talent we see him reunite with sam darnold we view the role in the offense being sound um we view him as you know a talented deep threat volatile deep threat receiver um but there is i think there is something going on and i'm not a knowledgeable enough football guy to spot what's happening but there is something going on with him but the field isn't moving away from him yet, right? And so the way I view, I'm starting to view him is I think fairly, as if, as just through a fairly simple lens, which is he is an extremely volatile player with a wide range of outcomes. And my general rule of thumb is I want to play those kind of extremely volatile players uh, when they are low owned, not when they are high owned. And so Robbie Anderson is not projecting for like immense ownership this week, but I've got him down at like 12% or so, which is pretty high ownership for someone who has cratered every single roster he's been on this season, right? Like that's probably higher than it should be. Like I'd be interested in playing a Robbie Anderson or a play like Robbie Anderson. Like I want to, I want to wait until no one's on them to play a guy like that. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to be in on a Robbie Anderson when he's fairly popular. And I think the brand name there is keeping him fairly popular. You know, he's the 12th highest owned wide receiver on the slate, according to the projections that I'm looking at, which isn't enormous, but like, it's still, that's still pretty popular. And so like, why would I go there uh, in the face of that ownership for such a volatile play when I could find, um, you know, when I could find similar upside possibly even with greater certainty uh at a much at a much lower ownership like i guess here's here's how i think about it if i would if i was going to play robbie anderson at 4700 why would i not just play odell beckham at 4600 beckham is one percent owned robbie anderson is like 12 percent owned both of them are very talented receivers with a lot of upside who have di- who have disappointed immensely this season right like they're both they're kind of the same guy like from a really high level lens, they both have a lot of talent. They've both been absolutely atrocious. And so if I want to play a guy like that, like why would I not play the 1% owned dude? Why would I play the 12% owned dude? That pretty wholly and completely captures my thought process with Robbie Anderson. Um, you know, looking at his top level stats, which the top level stats are, I think, what the fantasy community is clinging onto. Um, and that's pretty much everywhere you look throughout the, you know, the content provider scene is he's got 29.2% team air yards. He's got 19.1% of the team targets, and he's got an average depth of target of 12.3. Well, he has the lowest catch rate in the league of qualified pass catchers at 36.7%. He has a 12.2 drop rate unbelievable like that is absolutely and that goes back to your point of like there's something missing and i can't figure out what it is i think it just might be robbie anderson 
like 12.2% drop rate is absolutely asinine. We also, from a deep threat, expect a heftier yards after the catch total, 3.4 this year. Which, and then his average yards per route run is 0.51. And that kind of ties that whole bow of like, I don't know, man, there's something going on here. I don't know what it is. I can't see anything from film. The only thing that I can point to is like Robbie Anderson is broken right now. Yeah. The play that I like in that price quick Odell Beckham's yeah. metrics are actually pretty close to that, like similar target share, similar air yards, also atrocious catch rate. And so I'm not trying to say Odell Beckham is some smash play this week. My point is just if you're going to play a highly volatile play like that, like the time to play those highly volatile plays is low ownership, not high ownership. If you're looking for a pivot in that range, my answer is Jamison Crowder. Jamison Crowder played up to 80 he was up his snap rate was up to 80 percent last game which obviously was extreme um increase from his earlier season stuff when he was coming back from injury where he was down in the 40s and the 50s he's up to 80 percent Corey davis who leads the team in all receiving metrics is likely to be out he's listed as doubtful so we have like this jets team quarterbacked by whatever the hell his name is nobody knows is Mike White, perfect. What did the Jets do when he Mike White came in for three quarters last game? They let him throw the ball 32 times in three quarters. Like, yes, the game environment was like extremely negative game scenario for the Jets, but like that's that's the Jets, like we talked about. Like they are gonna have extremely negative game environments. So Jamison Crowder at 4,800 is super interesting to me as a a piece who could he has within his range of outcomes of hitting a hundred and hundred yards receiving and a touchdown. That is all I'll say about that. I'm not going to talk about the jets anymore. I promise Todd, that was for you. Um, all right, man, I want to now talk about tight ends real quick. And then, um, I'm going to have to leave you to answer questions this week. Um, Are you that's talking Tyler Croft? what's that? You can talk about Tyler Croft, you and the Jets. I don't know what it is. Nope, I'm not going to talk. I promise I'm not going to talk about the Jets anymore. Um, we're going to quickly go uh, clean up the positions. We're going to start at tight end because that's going to be the natural funnel for ownership. We'll talk about that here shortly. Um, I'm going to have to leave you to answer the questions by yourself this week. I'm so sorry. Uh, but that same, um, that same thing that my wife signed us up for uh, is why I have to go. Because uh, we've gone pretty long here. That said, looking at tight end ownership, Top three expected ownership, Dan Arnold, who I loved when JM was talking about him earlier in the season until I saw him up at 18 to 20% expected ownership. Now I'm like, yeah, no. Uh, Jared Cook, who there are no reasons for an expected increase to volume production across the board against the Patriots. There's nothing there that I can point to why his ownership is the way it is this week up at 15 to 17%. And then Ricky seals Jones um, at 12 to 14%. All these guys, Dan Arnold, 2,800, Jared cook, 3,400, Ricky seals Jones, 3,800. We've had a week like this before where three perceived value tight ends were the top three in expected ownership. Well, what does that tell us? That tells us that like, this is going to be the odds on favorite for how rosters are being built. What does that open up? Well, it opens up the possibility to pay up twice at the wide receiver position if we expect 
people to be paying up at quarterback with the two highest expected ownerships on the slate being higher priced guys. And the realization that we had earlier that we talked about, about the running back position, we don't expect people to be paying up times two at running back. So that gives us a very clear picture of how rosters are likely to come together this week. Talk to me about the tight end position real quick. Yeah, I, I, my tight end strategy is generally like pretty boring and, and pretty much the same. Like I like tight ends in my game sacks. So like, Seals of the three chalkiest tight ends, Ricky Seals Jones feels like the strongest one to me because of because of the role. The role is just so locked in. Like Jared Cook, he's still splitting time with Donald Parham. Dan Arnold's involved in that offense, but it's still the Jags. Like Ricky Seals Jones has been highly involved in this offense. It's a full-time role. As you mentioned, this is an offense that's short on pass catchers. So like of the three chalky ones, he's the one in a vacuum I'm still like in on. Um, other than that, like it's hard. Like Kyle Pitts has what I think is likely to be a difficult matchup, but it's hard for me to say, like, don't play Kyle Pitts when I think he's the highest ceiling tight end on the slate and um, he's going to be very low owned. Um, like I, I still want to play Kyle Pitts. Um, but other than that, like, I also want to play TJ Hawkinson, who I think, you know, if you're, we see a lot of ownership on Hertz and we see a lot of ownership on DeAndre Swift and we see a lot of ownership on Devonta Smith and Dallas Goddard. And so if you put those together, what that tells us is there are going to be a fair number of rosters with Jalen Hurts, uh, at least one of Dallas Goddard and Devonta Smith. And then, and then DeAndre Swift is the bring back. So cool. That makes sense. And that's probably the smartest and strongest way to play that that game stack like in a vacuum like that's the strongest way to play it um but you could go a different direction and say i'm gonna play you know jalen hurts with devonta smith or with, with quez watkins and i'm gonna bring it back with tj hawkinson instead of deandre swift and hawkinson like we saw that one giant blow up game from him and i remember after it people like people were like oh my god could he or actually had two good games in a row at the start of the season people were like oh my god is he the new tight end one is he the new tight end two? Oh my god he's so much better than kyle pitts like they were drafted right around the same place and hawkinson is so much better and then since then he's you know he's had a few bad games and he's been banged up but the last two games uh he seems back to full health right which is the most important thing because he was kind of banged up a little bit he doesn't there's no injury designation anymore uh he's played 80 percent of the snaps every week um but like there were a couple weeks where he kind of disappeared from the target tree a little bit and i don't know if that was just variance or injury but hawkinson has had 20 targets in the last two weeks so i don't again unsure if variance but like he seems back and no one's going to play him. And he's an interesting way to approach that game stack that I already like uh, in a way that's much lower owned than most people will be stacking that game. Um, and then in a vacuum, like Rob Gronkowski, I think uh, has a ceiling as high or higher than it's probably as a ceiling, a higher ceiling than any tight end of the slate other than pits. Um, and he's, he's cheap and he's coming in pretty low. Um, and Higby, like we already talked about, right? Higby is just, you know, you're betting that touchdown variant swings his way after it swung Cup's way so incredibly hard for the entire season so far. But again, Higby has 12 red zone targets to Cup's 15 on the season. Higby has two touchdowns to Cup's nine. Could that easily swing back the other way? It will probably even out over the season a little bit. I don't know if it's this week that it swings back, but I'm willing to make that bet it, when he's the uh, Higby is the single lowest owned Ram. Um, of the starting Rams. And so like 
I'm happy to embrace the the lowest owned RAM and on the you know the highest total game of the week uh, or highest total team of the week and hope that you know touchdown variance finally um, swings his way. Yep, I love it. My three favorite tight ends on the slate. We already talked about Tyler Higby. We crushed that one. Already talked about Robert Kowski. We crushed that one. The final one I think is pretty interesting. Um, it doesn't generate the amount of leverage uh, that I would like because. He's priced around the top three expected ownership tight ends, but that's Pat Fryermuth uh, out of Pittsburgh. We look at why Pat Fryermuth has run 104 routes, 20 targets on the season. Eric Ebron, who is out this game, has run 120 routes, 13 targets on those routes. The only other tight end on the roster is blocking specialist and special teams specialist Zach Gentry who has played 33% of the special team snaps this year and has only run 22 routes. So this is not a guy who we expect to be out on the field running routes. He's going to be blocking. So if we can like loosely combine Pat Fryermuth and Eric Ebron, that would be 224 routes on the season. That is Kyle Pitts level. That is Darren Waller level. That is the Washington football team aggregate tight end level. Like if we can project Pat Fryermuth to just be the tight end for the Steelers, he's going to be on the field a ton. He's going to be running routes a ton. Whether or not he sees targets on those routes, you know, remains to be seen. But in a game where there's expected to be wind, there's expected to be rain, there's expected to be this highly, you know, close contest where teams both teams are kind of vying for field position. Like Pat Fryermuth begins to make a lot of sense to me. Um, and he's priced at only 3.6. I wish he were priced lower or higher. He's kind of in that same range as those top three ownership guys, uh, which doesn't generate a lot of leverage from a roster construction standpoint, which is kind of what I would like out of the tight end position. It's kind of why I lean Tyler Higby and um, Rob Gronkowski, but Pat Fryermuth is highly interesting to me this week. I like that call. I hadn't thought about him a lot. I, I will confess to having a blind spot for Steelers receivers. Um, it's like as much as I love Deontay Johnson, like he's he's been more of a floor play than a ceiling play this year. And like, you know, again, I'm not I'm not a, like evaluate the football player specialist by any means, but like Big Ben just looks like he's struggling to make the most basic throws. So I just I, I've. And that doesn't mean that Fryermouth's not a good play, right? Or any of these guys isn't a good play. That's just sort of my own bias like I, that I kind of need to get over. Um, or I just feel like I've had a bit of a blind spot towards all the all, the whole Steelers pass-catching core. And like, you know, well, he can still make some throws. Guys can still hit. I don't say that to be like, don't play Steelers. I think that's a good call. And I like. I, I think that's a, a sharp call to talk about Fryermouth and think about him. Yeah, the last thing I'll add on Fryermuth is the level of involvement of Pittsburgh Steeler tight ends near the goal line. Um, that is data that goes back to last season as well as this season. They're highly involved in the red zone near the goal line, goal end zone targets. So, um, you know, there's a possibility he's super unlikely to see double digit looks, but there's the possibility of, you know, him going six catches for 70 yards and a touchdown, which could make him one of the higher point per dollar scoring tight ends on the slate. That's the last I'll say about that. Let's quickly talk about defense special teams. We talked about watching a football team carrying the highest ownership. Um, they are your insert low price 
um, chalk defense on the week. I dissected them in the end around. I will let you all read that uh, as opposed to going through that again. My two favorite defenses on the week clearly are the Bengals. Um, 19 sacks on the season, playing the Jets, playing a unknown quarterback who apparently is named Mike something. Uh, I, I'm just kidding. Um, but anyway, you get the picture here. Like They are extreme underdogs. Possibility that they score single-digit points, high likelihood of multiple sacks, and now we get this unknown quarterback who is going to be under pressure. We get the opportunity for turnovers. So Cincinnati, um, and then the Bills just seem materially underpriced at only 3.3. They're coming off of a week where they were, what, 4K? They were 4K last week, something like that. Um, so they seem material underpriced at 3.3 against Miami, who they've already shut out this season. Um, and they have three double digit uh, point outcomes. Those are my two defenses that I think I will kind of be on. Uh, what are you seeing? I just want to say, I mean, the, so the Bills wasn't that was the Tua missed the game in week two, didn't he? Um, but that's sad, hurt, right? Like. But that said, like, I don't know, you know, Jacoby Brissett is not he's not an absolutely helpless backup, right? He's not Geno Smith. Um, And the Bills have put up 17 or more points in three games, including it's the Chiefs. I think they're the highest scoring defense on the year so far, the highest scoring defense on this slate overall. Um, So at home, 3,300 definitely feels too low for them. Uh, The other guys I have identified just based on like, D-line, O-line matchups that I like. Uh, the Browns D has a huge edge over um, over the Steelers offensive line. And again, Ben like just looks washed. Um, that said, I generally... I, I, I try not to put a whole bunch of weight behind like the quality of the quarterback on the other side. I try to mostly look at just pressure rates because I can't evaluate like quality of quarterback uh, like quantitatively um but like ben is pretty immobile and so i think that's a good one um i will keep playing uh defenses against justin fields until he shows that he can be an nfl caliber quarterback um which so far he has not and he's i want to say like i think if you went and summed up all the def all the scoring of defenses against chicago since justin fields took over they will have outscored justin fields the quarterback which really tells you all you need to know about just how uh unready he has looked um like there's a part of me that says like rams because it's just it's just kind of like we've been playing defenses against the texans and because you know 5100 gets you to such a weird spot salary wise but like that honestly feels too cute to me um 5100 is a fairly ludicrous price um there's a part of me that wants the bucks because while Jameis went like Jameis Winston is a wide range of outcomes kind of quarterback. Like he could he could throw for four. I someone wrote someone wrote this in the Oracle. I think it was like JM wrote one of them and then someone else wrote the other one. Uh, and they were just opposite comments. And it was like, what what did you not see coming? That, or like what what in hindsight looks so obvious? And like I think JM wrote, of course Jameis Winston was going to throw for four touchdowns this week. And then the other comment like from someone else was, of course Jameis Winston was going to throw for four picks this week. Right? He's a high range outcomes quarterback. It would not surprise me to see him throw for four touchdowns it would also not surprise me to see him throw for four picks so i think that bucks is is viable they're pricey um but like i think that they're in the pool i think that my favorite like washington is probably not really in the pool for me just because i'm generally not in the business of playing like the highest on defense of the week um but 
I, I think that, you know, Cincinnati, Buffalo, Cleveland, and San Francisco are probably my top four that I'm that I want to have the most exposure to. I love it, man. That is going to be a wrap for me. I'm going to turn over the questions to the capable hands of Mr. Zandamir um, and get out to this shindig my wife signed us up for. Um, before I go, though, I do want to thank everyone for coming. I want to thank the people who have been with us the entire season coming to hang out with us every Saturday. For those listening new uh, this week, you like what you hear. This is just one of the ma- uh, major benefits of Inner Circle. Highly recommend you take advantage of the mid-season pricing. Get a sneak peek for kind of for the rest of the year. If you're listening later, same idea. It's been my pleasure, guys. I will catch you all next week. Later, Hilo. Have fun with the family. Later, Hilo. All right. Hey, X, we have uh, somebody with their hand raised I'm going to bring in here, and we have about five or six questions that I'll fire off with you, and um, we'll try to wrap this thing up by uh, 6 Eastern here. So we've got I would say that's that's. Yeah, I've got kind of a stop about then. I will say, though, if we don't get to all the questions, I'm happy to come back and put them in the Discord channel. Um, I also want to echo what Hilo said and, and mention to Aaron, like, if this podcast has been valuable to you, Aaron, is there any chance that we do we have the old ones like archived that we could possibly like since they're old now and out of date? Could we like share those out with the broader community as a like this is what the Inner Circle podcast is like? Yeah, that's that's a good idea. I know it's been brought up. If you guys want these uh, older podcasts that we've done that have only been available for Inner Circle and are specific to the week, but there's so much teaching in behind them, uh, let me know. Uh, you can drop a message anywhere on, on Discord chat. Tag me. Let me know what you think. And uh, we'll look to upload them into the free public stream so people can listen to them in the future here and try to take some uh, training out of it. Cool, cool. So, All right. X, let's our... get some questions here. Uh, the hand went down, so I'm going to go to the questions that have been yeah. asked um, on the Discord chat. All right. All right. Question one, X. Um, this is perfect for you. This is from the game 2417. Do you think it is better to adjust projections or exposure when adjusting an optimizer? Um, I try to start with, uh, with exposures, but what you'll find sometimes is this is actually kind of a lengthy topic, unfortunately. Um, what, what you'll find really is like what, a, what an optimizer is trying to do is it's trying to give you the highest projected lineup within the series of constraints you've, that you've given it. And so if you start giving it a whole bunch of constraints, like you start like mapping out like specific ownerships or even ownership ranges of I want between 20 and 30% of this guy and 10 to 20% of that guy. If you start mapping out a whole bunch of those, it can have a hard time trying to essentially create a solve function that uh, gives you the exposures you want for every one that you've uh, dictated exposures for. And so what you can sometimes find is that you're trying to get more of a given player uh, and it's not working. Like it's not, he's not coming up in the optimizer as much as you might want. You might want 20% and you're only getting 3% and you keep running it and running it and you keep trying to adjust other things. So generally speaking, what I try to do is I try to build through projections um, and I'll try to set ex- do some exposure setting of my own to like boost a guy that I want more of um, <clears throat> or or 
cap a guy that's showing up more than I want. Uh, if you're using Labs, which is my favorite projection or optimizer of choice, they also have like these little icons next to the player, like this little flames emoji and a, and a snowflake emoji. You can kind of just click those as like it's a quick like boost a little bit or, or downgrade a little bit. <clears throat> um, and so that usually works. And you can give up to three of each, like three snowflakes or three um, fire emojis. In some cases, and this is honestly more likely more often for showdown, in showdown, you often have guys who are projected for like one point. And so like it's really hard to get those guys to show up in lineups at all. And so if you want those guys, I often find that I need to boost their projections a little bit um, in order to get them to show up at all. And so I sometimes will will manually boost projections just to get a guy to like show up a little bit. Um, but I, I really try to build off of projections because I feel like when you start when you start manually editing projections, I think it uh, you, you're kind of taking away the value of what the projections are in the first place, right? Like to open, you start kind of overriding them. But in some cases, I find like if there's a guy I want in there, uh, in a certain percentage and I'm not getting it. Like it's sort of my only choice. All right. Question two is from Eric. Um, what are your expectations on Chubb's workload? I went into this week, assuming the earnest would fill in the usual hunt side of a timeshare, which may well be true, but the thought of 80% touch share Chubb at his price plus ownership is tantalizing. Wanted to see what your thoughts yeah. were on that. So this is kind of like talked about earlier when we were talking about what Tyler talked about running backs is this is an area where I feel like there's a lot of uncertainty and we just don't know. Um, I think it's unlikely that Johnson takes the hunt role because the hunt role tends to be more of a receiving role. And Johnson has never really shown that in his career. Uh, he has three catches on the year. Um, we had, last week when he was the, in the bell cow role, he had two targets. Um, so I don't think that I don't think Johnson moves into the uh, the hunt role. I do think that Johnson remains involved because, again, like and this just this just goes back to how teams are treating running backs now. Like the teams that will give a, give one running back, you know, like twenty five to thirty or more touches in a game, that's really rare nowadays. Um, so I do think that Chubb's upside is, uh, in terms of touches, is a little bit capped. Um, but that said, I, I think this is similar to when Hunt, when Chubb was out and, and people were playing Hunt and, you know, I think Hunt's upside in terms of touches was also similarly somewhat capped. Like he wasn't just going to get the all, like all of the Cleveland Browns running back workload and neither will Chubb. Um, but I do think though, that when you take, you know, they, they sort of form this one, a one B punch. And when you take one of those two guys out, I do think the other guy gets an increase to their workload expectation. So, you know, maybe Chubb goes from something like expecting, you know, 16 to 20 carries and one to two targets to expecting, you know, 18 to 22 carries and two to three targets. So that's actually fairly material, right? Like if you figure when you figure out like the points projected per touch, um, that's a fairly material difference to his outcome. Um, importantly, though, also Chubb is 6,800, which is, you know, normally he's like a mid 7K kind of range price. So you're getting him at a price at a cheap price. We know that he's one of the backs who has like, you know, a, like well over 100 yards and multiple touchdown um, ceiling. Right. Like he's his low, his low rushing output on the season is 83 yards. 
right? Like this is a guy who in five games has 523 rushing yards. Like he has a lot of upside. And so if he, if he gets in the end zone a couple of times, um, he could put up a really strong score and a really cheap salary. So that like, this is a volatile situation is the way that I would really envision it. And so as I've talked about before, when you see a play like volatility is something that you generally want to avoid at really high ownership and embrace at low ownership. And so like if Chubb was going to be 20% owned, I would say the correct strategy here when we don't know his role and we don't know how that split's going to work out uh, would be to be underweight him. But here we have Chubb at a, at a very, at a cheap price for him and at like 5% ownership. So I think that the right tournament strategy here is to be overweight him. I don't think he's like some smash play, but I do think that he's, uh, he's at 6,800. He's worth more than 5% ownership to me, but I think the field is scared by the uncertainty. All right. Next question from uh, D broth. Uh, this is a DK question. How about playing running back in the flex this week and paying up three times? Seems like there's enough value options at other positions to make it work. Uh, yeah, I mean, so that would be a way to be very different, right? So like if Tyler and I were talking about playing, you know, if you're doing, doing the double pay up, uh, is a way to, is a way to already differentiate yourself. So the question I think there is one, do you need to be that different? Um, and, you know, personally, I'm pretty much on the wide receiver and the flex bandwagon, um, because especially on DraftKings, and I think it's even, that's, there's an even stronger case for them DraftKings, um, because, Again, in part because of the way teams are starting to use running backs, uh, it's we haven't seen as many like really massive running back ceiling games, like 30 points plus, as we used to see, you know, two, three, four years ago when there were more bell cow backs around. And we just there aren't as many backs out there who have that realistic 30 point ceiling. If you want to take that approach, I think that's fine. There are guys in the week like there are there are more than three running backs who have 30 plus point ceilings this week. And so I think that's an entirely viable approach. Um, It's not how I personally play. But to be clear, like, I don't think that means it's bad or wrong. That's just not how I tend to prefer to build Um, on DraftKings. The PPR scoring, I tend to prefer to go um, just three wide receivers. And it's not that, like, I think that three running backs can't hit. This is the same argument for why I don't play two tight ends ever is when, you know, two tight ends can also hit. uh, Right. That can work. Um, But it worked. It tends to work at a lower rate than the field plays it. And so it's an easy, positive leverage play just to never do it. And I'm all about trying to simplify my process and sort of spend my brain power and time digging into and thinking about the stuff where my thoughts really have like a significant uh, chance of resulting in better outcomes. And I feel like this is an area where I could spend all day thinking about it and it would not necessarily result in me coming up with something that gives me a chance at a better outcome. So again, it's a personal preference. Um, I think it's totally viable. Uh, and, and three running backs do hit and will hit, right? I think it was a couple of weeks ago where there's a, th- where, like, it was definitely a three running back week. And like every tournament was won by, won by rosters with three running backs. So it can definitely hit. Um, but it's just not, it's not my play style personally. All right. This question's from R. Yang. RB question. Who has a safer floor among McKissick, Melvin Gordon, or Damian Williams this weekend? Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> um, sorry <laughs> it's like what a, what, a, what a list of names um so okay so i would say first off is let's i, I would scratch damian williams off the list um damian williams saw four touches last week and so i i think that he has 
I mean, unless they like, it's possible they were trying to bring him along slowly in his first game back after being out from COVID, maybe. I don't know. But like every indication is that Khalil Herbert has seized this role and and will likely keep this role unless he gets hurt uh, or until David Montgomery comes back. So, you know, I think Damian Williams' floor is extremely shaky. Like he had he had three carries and one target last week. And, you know, Damian Williams is supposed to be kind of the passing down back, but Herbert had five targets last week. So like, his role seems to be growing. So I'd scratch, uh, I'd scratch Williams off the list. And so it was, it was McKissick and Melvin Gordon. Um, yeesh. Ah, oh, man, that is a hard one, honestly. Like, I'm actually kind of curious where this question is from, because this almost sounds like a season long question to me. Like you have a season long team with these guys. You're going to figure out who to play Um, in. I'd I'd probably say McKissick, but I think that Gordon has more touchdown equity. So if Gordon gets in the end zone, then he probably outscores McKissick. If Gordon doesn't get in the end zone, um, you know, and like the, the matchup for Gordon is tough. Washington is a massive pass funnel. Uh, so I think it's McKissick. Um, yeah, yeah, I'll go with that. God, that's, those are, those are three running back names. Like when you, when you started the question before you listed the names, those were like the last three possible names I would have expected to be asked about. Yeah. I, I, when I read the question, I think, you know, looking at it, I, I don't know if it's it's for DFS, but it could be for obviously season long. So, um, yeah, um, if there if there's more clarification you want on that question, uh, you know, hit up Zandemir on Discord and yeah. I'm sure he can help you with it. I mean, I'll, All right. I mean, I'll just know yeah, if, you're, if you are talking DFS, I just want to throw out if you're talking DFS, like those guys are priced pretty close to Eli Mitchell and Khalil Herbert. Um, and even priced close to like Gibbs, Antonio Gibson and Miles Gaskin, who I would say are all or and Zach Moss, who are all stronger plays than anyone on that list. So if you're talking DFS, uh, I would probably not I would probably not prioritize any of them uh, over those other names. Um, but yeah, if you're talking season long, I'd probably say McKissick, especially if you're doing if you're doing if you're in full point PPR. All right. Last question, X, and then you can take us out of here. Uh, this is from Coach 232. With the Saints picking up Ingram this week and Peyton saying he'll play, does that cut into Kamara's goal line TD chances? Oh, good call, actually. Um, that's actually a really good call. So, yeah, I did talk about this, and I said that um, Taysom Hill being out gave Kamara more touchdown equity. Uh, and I had honestly not thought about Ingram when um, when I mentioned that. So that's a really good question. And the answer is I don't know. So – you know, Ingram is he's been he's been on the Saints before. So you could argue that he, you know, he has some familiarity with the offensive scheme. And so he's ready to step into some kind of role. I think it's unlikely he steps he steps into any kind of like material role because he hasn't been on the Saints in years. So it's not like, you know, and the offense has changed. So it's not like he's like ready to step in day one and, and take over a meaningful share of work. But uh, goal line plunges are pretty, you know, about as straightforward a running back play as you get. And so it's not like he needs a lot of practice to like learn how to, you know, dive into the end zone from the one yard line. And historically, the Saints have actually kind of limited Camara at the goal line. Um, historically, they've tried to kind of shelter him a little bit from those kind of like bruising goal line carries. Um, Camara's not like he's not Derrick Henry. He's not enormous. He's not some like mountain of man. So. Yeah, that's actually a really good call. I could see 
uh, Ingram kind of dinging uh, the goal line equity for Camara. So I think like the goal line equity for Camara is not the reason you're playing him here. Like you're playing him as sort of the like for the pass game work and the sort of focal point of the offense work. Um, but you're right that I did talk about that goal line equity is like for a pass interference call or something. And yeah, I think it does reduce it. Like, I don't know if it would be Ingram there or like if you, you know, if you had if the Saints had 100 goal line carries this week, like what percentage would go to Ingram versus Cam- versus Camara? Because um, that's the way I try to think about it is like in sort of like that mathematical uh, structure of like, you know, Camaro will get 30% of the goal line carries or 60% of the goal line carries. Um, that percentage number is definitely lower with Ingram in town. So great call out. Um, I hadn't thought about that because I think the previous backup was like Dwayne Washington with Tony Jones out and Dwayne Washington's another kind of small, like a small back, not like a bruising goal line back. Whereas Mark Ingram is more of your traditionally built running back who they could throw that goal line work at. So love the question. Great call out. Thanks for making me. Uh, sort of revisit that. Yeah, and just uh, we have an in-house Saints expert, I would say, someone that lives and breathes Saints football, and that's Lex, who does the matchup. So um, hit up Lex in Discord, and he actually dropped something in uh, the inner circle uh, questions about, oh, you know, on. that you might want to read that out loud there. He's like, why can I, why can't I? Oh, I think he's idle. Lex has his hand up um, in stage, but he's apparently... It looks like you invited him, Aaron, but he's not accepting. Lex, you there? Oh, curses. All right. Much for that. I was hoping he was going to get up here and like enlighten us on uh, some wonderful, you know, Saints knowledge, but apparently not. Not going to get it. Um, yeah, X, why don't you take us out here? And thank you, everybody, for uh, joining us on Inner Circle um, Saturday Night Pod. And uh, you guys have any questions later on tonight about the slate, X will be available. And uh, um, so will most of the team. So feel free to tag any of us and hopefully get some questions answered. Yeah, thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us. Um, always fun. Always good to see some new folks with the sort of expanded access this week. And I hope you all enjoyed and got some value out of it. Uh, as always, like I am super active in Discord. Uh, Hilo's active in Discord. Lex is active in Discord. Like, hit us up. We're hat. We love talking about this stuff. We'll talk about it through the rest of the night and into tomorrow morning up until lock. Um, if there's any other questions, you know, come at us. Otherwise. Go spend your night building sharp rosters, and I will see you at the top of the leaderboards. As Hilo likes to say, thank you, dudes and dudettes, and have a good one. Later.